Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary. And every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash BP show. Giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And Republicans are still saying, Mr. President, why, why did you make this announcement about killing all of Obamacare? We don't want that either. Hey, hello, everybody. Here we go on a Monday. It is April Fool's Day. Watch out. Don't believe anything you hear today, uh, except what you hear for the next two hours here on the Bill Press Show. Good to see you on this 1st of April 2019. Hello, 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 and uh, happy birthday to my brother, Patrick, uh, born on April Fool's Day. April Fool forever, huh? Yeah. It's got to be awkward to be to have an April 1st birthday, right? Yeah, you know, you hope people forget about it, but they never do. Exactly. Yeah. Hey, we hope you had a good weekend. Good to see you today, and uh, thanks to our good friend uh, Jason Dick for filling in on a Friday uh, well, and um, uh, keeping, keeping the good ship afloat here with the help of uh, Peter and Ray. Uh, and uh, now you're out of your weekend, and we're into another big week. Uh, it's going to be a week where uh, Democrats are going to be pushing for release of the full Mueller report and all the backup documentation before Attorney General Bill Barr says he's going to release it, which is mid-April. Uh, the deadline, the Democrats gave him a deadline of uh, tomorrow, Tuesday, April 2nd. Also, a week in which Donald Trump vows that he is going to Totally close the border because he said he's not playing games any longer. Yes, totally close the border, cripple the United States economy because of all the uh, exchanges that we do with Mexico every day, all the products that come in from Mexico every day, cripple the border again because he's so obsessed with his damn wall. All that to talk about, all that you want to comment on, get ready. Send us your comments on Twitter. Pardon me, can't wait to hear from you. On Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All righty, just a couple of other stories making news. Auburn, Virginia, Texas Tech, and Michigan State. That is your final four in the NCAA men's basketball tournament. 
couple of upsets over the weekend. Of course, Duke was probably the big one. They were the favorites to win the whole tournament. Well, yeah. they lost yesterday to Michigan State. It was just a by one. Point. It was a close. It was a close game. Sixty-eight, sixty-seven was the final score. But uh, Michigan State really took it to them. Uh, so uh, out of the four that are left, only Virginia is the number one seed. Michigan State is a two seed. Texas Tech is a three seed. And then, of course, there is Auburn, which is a five seed. Now, Auburn mm. beat Kentucky to make it to the Final Four. Uh, Kentucky had beaten Auburn twice <laughs> already this season, including Auburn's worst loss of the, of the season. Wow. When Kentucky beat them by, like, 22 points. And they uh, held on. They beat Kentucky. It puts them in the Final Four. By the way, the women, I don't know whether they're going to talk about that. I saw UConn did not was not first seeded, but they're in the final four. Uh, UConn is UConn is, I have that yeah. story next hour. Oh, I'll give you, okay. I'll give you all the details. I'll do all the details on that. Okay, so uh, it's Monday. So how Here do we, we do? How do we do at the box office? Well, us is no longer number one. Uh, Dumbo, the remake of Dumbo, the live action version of Dumbo, which I am not going to see, uh, directed by Tim Burton, brought in forty five million dollars. That makes it the number one movie in America. Us is Wait, number. Is this really like? Dumbo, the, the flying, flying elephant. elephant. Yeah. No, they remade the movie. It looks terrible. And the reviews have been horrible. Why? Yeah, th- th- that's the question. It's all about coulda versus shoulda, right? Like, yeah, you can make a live action Dumbo, but should you do it? Probably not. Uh, Us was in second place with $33 million. Uh, notably, Captain Marvel made $20 million this weekend, so that puts it very, very close to its one billion dollar mark worldwide Mm, i mean it just shows that the marvel machine is is still very much alive and well uh so it was interesting to see that us sort of dropped off so big after a huge opening weekend but 33 million that's not so bad i don't know when you're competing with a flying elephant (laughs) yeah This is the Bill Press Show. Okay, if you don't like that, we're going to do even more. We're going to close the border, Donald Trump says. Close the border. Starting this week, Donald Trump saying he's tired of playing games. Hey, hello, everybody. What do you say on a Monday? April Fool's Day. Monday, April 1, 2019. Great to see you today. Coming out of the weekend. Hope it was a good one for you. And are ready to dive into all the news of the day, all the news of this week here on the Bill Press Show as we join you coast to coast. Everywhere in this great land of ours, we are there with you, with the news of the day. Joining you online, of course, on YouTube. YouTube got time? YouTube. Okay. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Joining you on the radio statewide in Indiana, Indiana Talks. How are you doing out there in Indiana and in Chicago? Boy, I don't know if it's 33 degrees in Washington today. It's probably really icy cold in Chicago coming off the uh, Great Lake, the Lake Michigan there today. But at any rate, all you good people in WWCPT, hello, hello in the Chicago land and nationwide on television on Free Speech TV. So good to see uh, all of you. Good to be back with you. Thanks to uh, Jason Dick for doing a good job here on Friday. Uh, I was up in uh, New York City for the weekend. Got to tell you, um, I saw a great play with uh, Brian Cranston. Uh, Carol and I went to see him Thursday night 
in Network. It's the old Paddy Chayefsky movie Network. Uh, Howard Beale, the uh, anchor who uh, goes <laughs> off the rails on air. It's one of the greatest movies ever, it especially really about when you look at like uh, the media. Yeah, Peter Finch and yeah. uh, Faye Dunaway. So they've taken it, made a made a play of it. But here's what is it's it's Brian Cranston is a phenomenal actor. We remember him from Breaking Bad, of course, and also from the uh, uh, the play about uh, Lyndon Johnson, uh, um, all the way. Uh, but in this play, so get this, it's a it's about network news, right? Just I'm not going to give the whole play away. Well, if you've seen the movie, you know the story. Um, as I say, the anchor goes off the rails, but it's so the, the set is. A newsroom, and there, to off to one side, there's a, the newsroom, uh, the the studio, news studio. Off to one side is the control room. In the back is a makeup room where they're actually getting their makeup. You see all of this happening, but the entire back of the screen, the back of the stage, is a television screen. And so, with the actors, they've got people on set with cameras like TV cameras, who are taking their pictures as they're playing, giving their lines. But it's all projected up on this huge screen. The whole back of the stage is this huge television screen. So you end up watching the play on television when it's actually happening right in front of you. It's really cool, very, very cleverly done. And when when Howard Beale, Brian Cranston, does his big thing about, I want you now to get up, go to the window, and open the window and stick your head out and shout, mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. You know, yeah. You're not just watching an actor saying this. You're watching this huge TV screen of this actor saying that. It's very powerful. That's cool. Very powerful. Yeah, I've never seen that impact. And it works for, it works for that because they say it's about a TV show. At any rate. If you can't make it to the play and you haven't seen the movie, at least watch the movie. At least watch the movie. You can get yeah. it on Netflix, I'm sure. Yeah, it's out yeah. there. It's out yeah, there. Right. And if you happen to be in the New York area, make a point of uh make a point of seeing network. You will you will really love it. So yes indeed, uh, Donald Trump he is uh, threatening. He's back on the border. It's sort of like when all else all else fa- all else fails, right? We go back to um the threat on the border, the threat that forced him to close shut the government down for 35 days. Uh, it's his go-to top, a go-to issue, go-to topic uh, when he's having uh, a bad day. And he should not have been having a bad day because it was a week ago we found out that he basically got a pass from the Robert Mueller report so far. Uh, but at any rate, uh, he can't let go of the border. That's his bread and butter issue for his base. Uh, and so the first thing he did over the weekend is he cut aid to the three countries where most of the migrants are coming, uh, um, immigrants are coming from today, uh, from the so-called triangle, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, or as Fox News calls them, and actually did, with a Chiron, identifying them as the three Mexican countries. Donald Trump says, we're cutting off aid. We were giving them 500 million dollars. We're giving them tremendous aid. We stopped payment to Honduras, to Guatemala, and to El Salvador. I just want to, it's just want to jump in, because you said the, this Fox News thing, and it sounded yeah. like a joke. It's not a joke. It was 100% real. They put up a Chiron. They thought it was, they 
that think they're Mexican cut yeah, parts of and Mexico. Said, Trump is cutting <laughs> off aid to three yeah, Mexican, Mexican countries. countries. Right. Fox News. Yeah. Why do you believe anything you see or hear on Fox News? Gets me. Um, but at any rate, uh, several people have pointed out, including members of the Trump administration, that these countries, we're actually working with these countries. We have been with these countries now to try to improve conditions there so that fewer people will want to flee because of the economy or because of the violence there, making things better in El Salvador, better in Guatemala, better in Honduras, with some success, that the flow of people from those countries has actually slowed down because of the assistance that we're giving them. And the worst thing we could do is do what they're doing, which is cut off the assistance, which is making things better, which, of course, is only going to make things worse. But do you think Donald Trump would understand that? No. Do you think anybody around him would have the guts to tell him this is going to do just the opposite of what we want? This is going to boomerang? No, of course. So, number one, Donald Trump cuts off a foreign aid. He's done it. Cut it off. Executive action. Congress didn't do it. He did. Uh, to Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And then the other thing he's saying that he's going to do this week, which again, uh, people, economists and members of his administration have warned against, uh, but no stopping Donald Trump when he makes up his mind. He announces yesterday that uh, we are also going to um, just simply shut down the border. If they don't stop them, we're closing the border. They'll close it, and we'll, we'll keep it closed for a long time. I'm not playing games. And as several people pointed out yesterday on Sunday talk shows, okay, so first of all, there's a total disconnect here, right? Yes, there are, and, and there were maybe 100,000 people apprehended last year, or last month, rather, just March, month of March, trying to come across the border. So there is a flood of people who are either seeking asylum or trying to cross illegally. There's, there's that problem. Then there are the ports of entry where $1.7 billion in goods comes across. A lot of those are auto parts. They, it's produce, food products, all kinds of stuff coming across from Mexico into the United States legally through trade deals that we have, orders that we have, um, you know, manufacturing partnerships that we have with co companies that are, or outlets or whatever, that are branches that are located in Mexico, $1.7 billion a day. And Donald Trump says, he to, to solve this problem over here of so many people coming to the border trying to get in, we're going to shut down this part of the border over here, which is the flow of goods, which has nothing to do with that part over there. Total disconnect. Uh, but Donald Trump insists that he is going to do it. And part of the reason, you know, the scare tactic with Donald Trump when it comes to the border, um, emergency, national emergency, fiscal crisis, national security crisis, hum, hum, human, humanitarian crisis, you name it. Uh, because of the caravans, well, it's gotten even worse. As if one caravan wasn't enough, now Donald Trump says 
two are we, on their way. We have right now two big caravans coming up go. from Guatemala. Massive caravans walking right through Mexico. So Mexico is tough. They can stop them, but they chose not to. Now they're going to stop them. And if they don't stop them, we're closing the border. It, it right. really shows he only has like three ideas. I know. Ever, yeah. right? right? Like he's only a, a, a capable of thinking like maybe three mm-hmm. things at any given moment. Right. Caravans. This was what he made the the midterms in 2018 all about. It was all about the caravan. Right. And, I mean, look, it had some impact. Uh, didn't help in the house. Didn't help in the house <laughs> at all. No. Uh, and, like, right. they're back to this? Yeah. Oh, but there are two now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we're going to hear more and more about the scare tactics about the, about the caravans and about the emergency. He'll probably declare another, make another emergency declaration. Uh, so uh, Donald Trump busy on the one hand dealing with the border. The other hand is um, Obamacare, Obamacare, Obamacare. As we reported last week, he pulled the rug out from under uh, the Republicans in Congress when without consulting them, without um, seeking their advice, he just abruptly announced uh, that the Trump administration was going to side with uh, attorneys general around the state who had filed a lawsuit not to um, get rid of the parts of Obamacare they didn't like and keep the good parts, but just to get rid of the entire Affordable Care Act. Uh, that's has never been the position of the – actually, it was the goal of the Trump administration, but they've always pretended to say, no, we're going to keep the good stuff like protection for people with preexisting conditions. That went out the window last week. It still has – a lot of people wondering, particularly among Republicans, what the hell. Uh, Bernie Sanders over the week, uh, yesterday on uh, one of the talk shows, anyway, right, said, so here's the difference. Here's what would happen if Donald Trump has his way for people who have a pre-existing condition. Doing away with the protections that the ACA has for pre-existing conditions, Margaret. That means if you have cancer, you have heart disease, you have diabetes. If Trump gets his way... The cost of health insurance for you will be so high that many people literally will not be able to afford it. Thousands of people will literally die. Right. And again, the contrast here is, uh, again, we talked about this last week, There's there are two sides of this issue, and they are totally clear cut. The Democrats introduced legislation on the same day that Donald Trump said he wanted to, that the administration was now seeking to totally kill, eliminate the Affordable Care Act, every provision of it. Protection for pre-existing conditions, ability of young people to stay on their parents' plan until they're 26, um, preventive care, mammograms, colonoscopies, whatever. Every part of Obamacare that people have gotten, gotten the subsidies, the, the, the state exchanges, every part of Obamacare that people have been, have been taking advantage of and enjoying and really liking for the last 10 years, the whole thing uh, out the window. Um, and Democrats, that very same day, he announced that they introduced a plan to fix Obamacare, make it better, make it stronger, and do something about prescription drugs at the same time. So um, the administration is stuck in this position of now trying to defend their position. And what do they do? They just lie. Oh, what's new about that? But here's Mick Mulvaney, the acting, everybody, most of the people around Donald Trump these days are acting, the acting White House chief of staff 
on uh, yesterday. He was on with Jake Tapper, and then he was on, I think, with Face the Nation as well. The debate about pre-existing conditions is over. Both parties support them, and anyone telling you anything different is lying to you for political gain. No, 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 Mr. Mulvaney, you're the one who's lying. Yes, both parties say they support maintaining protection for people with pre-existing conditions. But in fact, the Republican Party, the Trump administration, again joined a lawsuit last week. They're totally on record getting rid of every provision of Obamacare, including protection for people with pre-existing conditions. So how can you say that they're for it when, in fact, their actions throw it out the window? Their actions get rid of it. Very, very clear, and the American people are not going to be fooled by this. And a lot of Republicans are saying, what the hell? Donald Trump has really put us out on the limb, right, on this issue where we don't want to be. As, we, uh, as was reported last week, Kevin McCarthy, the Republican leader of the House, called up the White House and said to Donald Trump, what the hell are you doing? We lost our ass in 2018 over this issue of health care, and now you're making it even worse. Here's a Republican, always a loyal Republican, Peter King from Long Island, um, uh, always, always sings out the Republican uh, hymnal, except on this one, he just doesn't understand it. Peter King yesterday saying, you know, um, it's kind of too late now. Obamacare has been around for 10 years. What are we doing? You can't just undo a health care plan that's in place the way this is. Again, whether we like it or not, it's there. And it's become part of the everyday fabric of uh, you know, the average American family. Yeah, right. Uh, and so who, who's responsible? Peter King comes right back. Yeah, the guy that they put out on the talk shows yesterday to defend this plan is the guy that Donald Trump, that talked Donald Trump into taking this absolute position against Obamacare, a position that was um, that uh, was opposed by the Attorney General, Bill Barr, by the Secretary of HHS, Alex Azar. They told the president, no, this is not a good idea. But Mick Mulvaney, it's something he wanted to do as a member of Congress. Now he was able to persuade Donald Trump to take this extreme measure. Um, Peter King points the finger right at him. Mulvaney has been, uh, uh, again, he's, it was part of the Freedom Caucus. He was always uh, obstructing things when he was in the House. And now he has the uh, direct ear of the president, direct line to the president. So I would probably blame Mulvaney. But the end- I, think that, I think that's very instructive because yeah. you see all these Tea Party <laughs> Freedom Caucus types right who talk about you know how broken the government is and this is how they want to fix the government and every idea that they have is wildly unpopular just wildly unpopular and so they're just swimming upstream here trying to get these bad i bad uh unlikable unpopular ideas sold to the american people and it's a disaster yeah and as susan collins pointed out last week okay if you're going to here we go again. How many times they voted over fifty? Remember, over fifty times in the House they voted to repeal Obamacare. They could never get it through the Senate. When <laughs> wait, and let's remember this is at a time when Republicans controlled the Senate and the House and the White House. They could not repeal Obamacare when they had all both branches of government, both houses of the Congress, could not do it because again. 
Too many people saw, hey, this is a program now that is benefiting millions and millions of Americans. And if we're going to kill it, we've got to replace it with something. They still have nothing. I saw several shows yesterday where they asked, okay, and Susan Collins made this point last week. If we're going to say we're going to repeal it and replace it, what are we going to replace it with? We need something to offer the American people. After 10 years, they still have nothing. They have not come up with one plan. And the idea that, as Donald Trump says, we're going to be known as the party of health care, when? You really think if 10 years that they could not come up with a, a, an alternative plan, that they're going to come up with something between now and the end of the year? Because in 2020, they'll get nothing done. Everybody's going to be busy running for president. Most of them are already. The idea that Donald Trump, Mick Mulvaney, they're going to come up with a new health, total health care plan to replace Obamacare is just not realistic at all. Uh, well, having dumped on Donald Trump for all those things, one thing we do have to say is that he does, he, he did say another good thing this week. Um, we have to agree with him on this, that we all love the Great Lakes, don't we? And we love them for all the same reasons that Donald Trump does. I support the Great Lakes. Oh. They're beautiful. They're big, very deep, record deepness, right? <laughs> Hell yeah. That was out of Grand Rapids, Michigan, Friday night. I love, I mean. Who doesn't support the Great Lakes? What I, does that mean? Uh, I support the Great Lakes. Uh, no, I'm opposed to them. Drain the Great Lakes right. and build condos. <laughs> right. Or plant corn. Is I mean, like, the, the whole what? record deepness thing I, is very funny, right? Oh, but well, It's like but, Puerto Rico is an island. Surrounded by water. Lots of water. Lots of Big water. Big water. Big water. Mm-hmm. It, Biting it, turtles. And that's, <laughs> and that's funny, right? But also, I support the Great Lakes. Always have. Is the words he actually said? I mean, just imagine the life that this guy has had. Yeah, and him yeah. thinking about the Great Lakes, you know, right. and it's ugh. well. He also said um, this was also in Grand Rapids. He supports his um, voters too. He loves his voters. Um, you, I want you to uh, <laughs> diagram this sentence as well too. Okay, here he is. Quote: I about his voters. Quote. I always say they came from the valleys. They came from the mountains. They came out of the damn rivers. I don't know what you were doing in the river, but they came from the cities. They came and they came and they didn't even know. <laughs> they didn't even know. <laughs> oh, that's so good. I report, you decide. Yeah. Uh, okay. On to the elephant in the room. Uh, Joe Biden. Joe Biden criticized uh, by uh, a Democratic activist, former candidate for lieutenant governor, former head of the uh, uh, Nevada Assembly, uh, Lucy Flores, for inappropriate behavior, uh, which she says on Joe Biden, remember, it was at a campaign rally in 2014 when she was running for lieutenant governor, uh, that he came up, uh, they were standing in line to go on stage. Um, lined up in the order in which they would appear. Uh, she was in front of Joe Biden. Joe Biden puts his hand on her shoulders and puts a kiss on the back of her head. Uh, she says it was not sexual assault. It was not sexual harassment, but it was inappropriate behavior. 
Uh, here is Lucy um, Flores telling Jake Tapper yesterday on CNN what she thinks the whole issue here is. This really is about women feeling like we have agency. We, if we don't want you to touch us, then don't touch us. And she points out that Joe Biden's initial response uh, that he didn't mean anything, uh, his intention was not to offend her, uh, she finds lacking. If he is saying that he never believed that that was inappropriate, then frankly, I think that's a little bit of a disconnect. And Lucy Flores went on with that in, in an interview with, uh, with Joe Biden yesterday to say that she believes uh, that what Joe Biden did then back in 2014 disqualifies him, was disqualifying for any presidential candidate. Uh, and she made the point that the problem is that we won't be able to um, basically, we'll have to spend all of our time trying to point out the difference between Donald Trump and Joe Biden, that will be impossible. They're both basically both in the same boat, so therefore we can't have Joe Biden running. To which I have to stand up and say, that just goes too far. I am here standing up. Yes, I will. I know I'll be unpopular with many of you, but standing up for Joe Biden, I think there's a huge, first of all, I want to make a couple of points clear. I'm not supporting anybody in 2020. I think you know that. Not supporting Bernie Sanders yet. Not supporting anybody yet. Not supporting Joe Biden. I don't care whether Joe Biden runs or not. I think if he does run, he could very well not win the nomination. But, and I believe every word she says. I believe every word she says. And I, my rule is, you believe the women in this Me Too movement? And my other rule is, you don't touch anybody, man or woman, unless... You've got their permission to touch them. So not defending what he did. But I do do strongly disagree that you put Joe Biden and Donald Trump in the same boat, that this disqualifies Joe Biden, uh, I, you know, from, from running for office. Look, we're not talking about what Joe Biden did. I mean, we're not talking about what Donald Trump did, 20 women accusing him of sexual assault bragging, publicly bragging about grabbing women by their genitals, planting kisses on them because he is who he is. I mean, the guy who's been accused of rape by one of his former wives. We're not talking about Charlie Rose. We're not talking about Matt Lauer. We're not talking about Harvey Weinstein or Les Moonves. I mean, far from it. And I mean, I think at some point you got to be able to make some distinctions. This was inappropriate behavior on the part of Joe Biden. I had nothing, I'm sure, had nothing to do, no sexual connotation whatsoever. It's, it's as some people say, not saying it was right, Joe being Joe. He's a toucher. He's a hugger. He's, he, that's sort of his personality, um, uh, overly friendly, if you will. Um, but I think at some point we've got to stand up and say, okay, this is wrong. Joe, you owe her an apology. And then move on. But to say, oh, this is wrong. So anybody who's done anything ever inappropriate, therefore disqualified as a Democrat, we're going to throw them out and say, you cannot uh, run for president because you're no better than Donald Trump. Joe Biden's a hell of a lot better than Donald Trump. Let's not go there. I think that makes a mockery of the entire Me Too movement. So let's get our senses here. 
is all I'm suggesting. I, I think that one of the uh, things that people are looking at here as well is that this was all sort of made worse for Biden by the fact that he did not have a great apology for it. He didn't. Uh, and we should just be honest about that. No, you're, he did You're right. I mean, yeah, he didn't. I, you, you know, as you just said, he could have come out and said, you know what? I'm sorry. Times have changed. This is who I've been for a long time. And, and yeah. I, this is not I realize I can't now, do anymore. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. not what he did. That's right. not what he did. And I'm not saying it's disqualifying either. I, I, you know, there there is a line that you don't cross and you can cross it a little bit or you can cross it a lot. And I think that, you know, Joe Biden crossed the line a little bit. It's not as like you said, it's not as bad as Charlie Rose or Donald Trump or anything like that. But he did cross a line and you right. should be able to say I crossed a line and I've learned I'll, a lesson. and It won't happen again. I'll make I'll I'll throw more fuel on the fire. I think what Al Franken did was inappropriate, but I think Al Franken should still be in the United States Senate. We got to draw some lines somewhere, and not everything is a um, uh, deserves capital punishment, if you will. Oh, we got a lot going on here today. We're going to be talking about, but very, very excited uh, to find out what's the latest on the environment. Uh, how about it? The Green New Deal, climate change, anything positive happening out there? Uh, nobody knows better than Michael Bruhn, who's the executive director of the Sierra Club, uh, happens to be in Washington uh, this week, and we're glad to get him, welcome him to studio a little bit later. John Allen from NBC News joins us as a friend of Bill and Elena Plott from The Atlantic, covering the White House for The Atlantic. So great lineup here. Let's dive into the environment and climate change coming up next with Michael Bruhn's Sierra Club. Quick break. We'll be right back. This is The Bill Press Show. April Fool. Ha <laughs> ha. Yeah, no, April Fool. No April Fool here. We mean it. You can believe every word that you hear on the Bill Press Show, but the rest of the day, be very, very careful. Hello, everybody. Here we go um, with the news of the day on the Bill Press Show this Monday, May, April 1st, rather. Uh, coming to you live from Washington, D.C., as always. Uh, and we are here today with the help of the International Association of Firefighters. Those great men and women of our firefighting departments under President Harold Schaitberger on the front lines protecting America's families every day. Check out their website at IAFF.org. Um, with uh, the comments, your comments on the last uh, half hour and uh, the news of the day so far, with still lots more to go. Peter? Yes, indeed. Lots of comments on Twitter, at BP Show, <laughs> at BP Show. Uh, let's just uh, start out with KG, who talks about Donald Trump and his addiction to the news cycle, says Trump has to gobble up the headlines every single day, whether they're good or bad. It doesn't really matter. Uh, yeah, I agree with that. Jim says about what's Is that going, why he uh, came out for the Great Lakes? Had to be. Yeah, had to be. Right. Uh, talking about the shutting down of the border, Jim says, I wish that the CEO of every Fortune 500 company would barge into the Oval Office and tell Trump that shutting down the border is completely insane. Yeah, not a bad idea. Uh, just was, from an economic business point of view, right, shutting down the border is going to mean uh, – Higher prices, a lot of delays at plants, a lot of you know plants, the assembly lines and whatever won't be able to just function. Yeah, they get their parts from Mexico. Yeah, crazy. Uh, and we have a poll up 
right now at BP Show, at uh-huh. BP Show, should Joe Biden be disqualified from the 2020 race after the Lucy Flores allegations? We ask you yes, no, or undecided. It's very, very early. Uh, but right now, 14% of you say yes, he should be disqualified. 75% of you say no. And 11% of you are undecided. Go and vote on that poll. It'll be up all day. We'll read the results tomorrow. All right. Thank you, Peter. And thank At you BP all. Show. At BP Show. Yeah. And thank you all for your comments. Uh, we love uh, love hearing from you. Uh, the I believe uh, the first environmental organization in the uh, country and still... The biggest and the best is the Sierra Club. Uh, there are many out there, but the Sierra Club is the king, and Michael Bruin is the executive director of the Sierra Club, based in San Francisco, but whenever he comes to Washington, D.C., we're delighted that he stops by to say hello. Hi, Michael. It's good to see you again. Hey, Bill. It's been a while. Good I, to see you, too. It has been a while. Right. Um, I want to start on a positive note where I'm sure uh, on a rare occasion that uh, there's something that you and Donald Trump can agree on oh. um, that... Uh, uh, on Friday night, out in Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, there, he uh, came up in defense of the Great Lakes. Here's the, here's the president. I support the Great Lakes. Always are. They're beautiful. They're big. Very deep. Record deepness, right? There you go. Yeah, <laughs> Very eloquent. <laughs> I know. <laughs> There's water in them, too. <laughs> it's like, I support the Great Lakes. Oh, man. Like, who doesn't, right? I mean, it's sort of... Good way to start the week, listening to the president. There you go. <laughs> I just wanted you to know some things we can, we can agree on. Uh, how are we doing overall, you know, with taking care of this planet of ours? You know, it's funny. When you said uh, some good news on Friday night, we also had some good news on Friday night because the president's attempts to expand drilling in the Arctic and the Atlantic were ruled unlawful. So uh, one more victory. We, we, the environmental community, have won about 40 times in court against this administration for again and again and again and again and again, yeah. violating the law and trying to open up public lands and public waters for offshore oil drilling, fracking, mining, and things like that. You know, I was traveling over the weekend. I just saw the headline. But this, was this... Uh, no, this was offshore. So Anwar is the yeah, Arctic right. National Wildlife Refuge, which is on land. This was in the Arctic Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. And, and basically- Federal judge ruled- Federal judge ruled that uh, the Trump administration's attempts to undermine protections that were put in place by the Obama administration were unlawful because they had no compelling reason to underturn those protections or over, sorry, sorry, overturn yeah. those protections. So it's important for a couple reasons. One, because it helps to protect the Arctic, helps to protect Atlantic oceans from drilling, but also it signals that other attempts by the administration to drill on or or mine on land and to reduce protections for the Bears Ears National Monument, uh, Grand Staircase Escalante National Monument, both of those are in Utah, those could fall apart as well. So... um the, the, the those attempts there were three national monuments that they all cut one in half and basically eliminated the other two. Yeah, uh, two really big ones: the Grand, Grand Staircase Escalante, es- Grand, Grand Staircase Escalante, uh-huh. and Bears Ears, and Bears both Ears. in Utah. Both are incredible places, uh, holding lots of uh, cultural and historical. And there's artifacts. still challenges to to those actions that have not been resolved. That's right. Yeah, both are still standing in court right now. Right. Uh, also, I imagine the Arctic drilling has some important impact for California, the, the, the entire West Coast, right, where, the, yep. where there has been a 
ban on offshore drilling, any new drilling, and yeah, that yeah. Trump wants to reverse. Yeah, it's true. So uh, in Santa Barbara, we just celebrated the 50-year anniversary of the massive spill in Santa Barbara. And of course, the Trump administration would like to commemorate that horrific event by expanding drilling <laughs> off of California's shores. There's also a proposal to expand um, development onshore uh, in state and federal on state, state and federal lands. So we're fighting both of those at the same time as well. Right. Uh, that little bit of good news, but then maybe that was offset again by the Trump administration um, coming out. I'm not sure exactly what movement, but some a Keystone Pipeline, right? Yet again. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, for, for those who haven't followed the Keystone Pipeline for a little bit of time, Keystone Pipeline would take oil from the tar sands in right. Canada which is some of the dirtiest, most highly pollutant and toxic oil on the planet, would take it all the way from Canada, basically through the country, so that the oil could be exported to other countries. We, the Sierra Club and many others, have been fighting that for more than a decade now. Uh, and we just won another victory in court against the construction of the pipeline. Um, this is a pipeline that uh, really won't go away, most likely, <sighs> until we get a new president. But we, we won again in court. It's delayed again for another period of time. It'll be more difficult for the company to operate it. But it, so it is, what's the status of it now? It is under construction, correct? Or there, is it in place? There are parts that are under construction and large parts that now are stalled because of this and other rulings. And have there been um, any leaks or anything that? Of course, pipelines leak. Almost yeah, every pipeline yeah. you can picture uh, that you can point to, whether it's oil or gas. <clears throat> they leak. And so we have had spills um, for the portions that have been built so far. Right. Um, just bouncing around the things that uh, that I know all fall into this wide uh, range of issues that the Sierra Club's involved in. But I was in New York over the weekend, and the big news up there that New York State joining California in banning single-use plastic bags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a big step, isn't it? I mean, people think, oh, it's just little plastic bags but it is a big step and it's part of a growing movement you're seeing now two states but lots of cities companies making big changes in plastic bags eliminating plastic straws mm -hmm. uh, single-use plastics in that are used in uh, dozens hundreds of different ways are now starting to be phased out or banned or just at least generally viewed as unethical we don't need them we don't need these kind of products when we have better alternatives that don't destroy the environment I you know I think that if you look at across a range of environmental issues, there there is some reason to feel grim. There's some reason to feel concerned about the fate of our dear planet. But we're seeing a big resurgence in environmental policies, victories at the state and local level, uh, and it's starting to add up to be something really significant. And um, and I think that it seems to me that the public support these measures, I mean, yeah. is pretty solid. Yeah, yeah, it is. Right. You know, and Maybe. we, when we're advocating for these type of policies, we we really don't even have to explain why anymore. We've won on the issue. Most folks mm -hmm. understand that we don't really need to pollute our air and our water and our climate. Um, and the question usually is how quickly can we phase in solutions? What will it cost? What will the jobs be like? Who? What will happen with the transition from people who are employed in the problem industries. So I do feel some reason to be optimistic, but we've got a lot of work to do. Right. Uh, can we be optimistic about um, moving toward, well, let's just, let's just start with the great big Green New Deal, mm -hmm. right? 
Um, which, of course, the Republicans' response is only to try to um, ridicule it. And uh, But um, does that have a shot? Does that have a chance? Sure does. The reason why it has a chance is because you have a, somewhere between a majority and a supermajority of people who are in favor of it. You know, we're seeing wide uh, disparities between people who want to take action on climate change and those who don't feel that climate change is a problem between people who want to move our country to 100% clean, renewable energy and people who think that mining coal and poisoning our watersheds and polluting our air and our water and our climate is okay. So the Green New Deal is popular, particularly among young people, because it addresses multiple problems with one set of solutions. We can find a way to fight climate change effectively, not just talk about it, we can put people to work and reduce income inequality, not just talk about it. We can actually help workers in coal and oil and gas industries, not just talk about it by passing this bill. And it's true that uh, you have uh, many Republican leaders who are mocking it or ridiculing it, but that that's just what they do. And mm -hmm. I, I do think that we're going to see a big change in uh, this country in terms of how it's governed. We're going to get a new president. We're going to get a new Senate. Uh, and I think when that happens, you'll see this move pretty quickly. What I find attractive about the Green New Deal is that it is and um, sort of um, eye-opening about is that it's it it's environmental, it's economic, it yeah. ties it all together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's jobs, it's new new jobs, new yeah. new technologies, and and. Uh, it's not just an environmental piece of legislation. Yeah, that's one of the things that attracts us to it as well. I mean, when you talk about climate change, you're talking about how do we power our society? How do we keep the lights on? How do we move people and things from, places to, from place to place? How do we make our food? What kind of food are we consuming? All of these kind of things. And so it's, it's impossible to have a thoughtful climate policy if you're not also addressing economic injustice and mm -hmm. inequality at the same time. And that's what the Green New Deal does. Right. Uh, and so California has adopted, uh, I think what the Green New Deal is saying is that we would be a fossil-free yeah. energy agenda that's right. within, I forget, 20. As soon as possible in, in terms of producing electricity within the next decade. Right. Uh, California's already adopted that goal, haven't they? Not quite that timeline, but yes, California yeah. has, well, not just California. So Cal first it was Hawaii, uh -huh. uh, said let's go to 100% clean renewable electricity, then California, now New Mexico, soon hopefully uh, the state of Illinois. We're seeing Minnesota move in that direction. Colorado's talking about moving in that direction. With, uh, Washington is talking about moving in that direction. So we've got a number of states that either have set policies or are debating legislation, um, and that's on top of now a hundred, more than 110 cities that have set the same policy. So what's so impressive about that is Washington may be in gridlock, right? Washington yeah. may not be able to get anything done other than renaming a new post office, but Maybe. the states may be right. That's ambitious. The states have picked up yeah. the lead here, yeah. right? Yeah. I think starting with Jerry Brown in California and other yep. states following yep. and saying, well, you know, Washington may not have its act together, but we can't wait. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's th these are some of the things that are exciting. States and cities, companies doing the same thing. All right. So I'm going to brag a little bit here. All right, okay? Go for it. Um, that in 19 back in 1980, 
Uh, Carol and I built a house in Marin County, uh-huh. which is <clears throat> still there today, passive solar house. We've been All off right. the grid ever since. Wow. Um, everybody could do that. Yeah. I think. Here in Washington, D.C., we have solar panels on the roof of our house. And we actually are like a little power plant. Right. We get a check from the utility Producing every month need. because yeah. we produce more than more than we need. Yeah. Um, which so everybody has there are things they can do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe people live in a condo or an apartment cannot yeah. put solar panels on the roof, but they could organize. Yeah. Their their and fellow residents to do can. so. They right. Uh, but that leads to my question: Is so. Are the cost of wind and solar coming down to where they really are economically viable today? More than that. So the costs have come down so much. Uh, the costs have come down since I was last on this show several months ago. So much so that when you move off of coal or off of natural gas or off of nuclear power onto solar or wind, if you're using energy storage, a big battery, yeah, you'll save money. In most places, in a majority of states in this country, uh, soon to be every state in this country. Even over natural gas. Oh, even over natural gas. That's right. So that is why that is the reason why California said, let's get off all dirty fuels. And you've got New Mexico and Minnesota and Hawaii and all these other states, saying, New York, saying the same thing. Let's. Why do we need all of these dirty fuels when moving to renewable energy actually saves money? and it puts people to work, and it reduces air and water pollution and helps to fight climate change all at the same time. Right. And what does that mean in terms of, so these are, um, in terms, instead of a power plant, you're going to have fields of solar panels or, yeah. of, you know, these wind farms? You'll have that, yeah. So what, what it will mean... Um, what it will mean is this. So in, in our country, like, if you look, if you look to the very beginning of this decade, we got about 50% of all of our electricity from coal, about another 20% of our electricity from nuclear power, about another 25% from natural gas, mm-hmm. and then a couple percentage points from, from solar renewable, wind huh? renewables. Yeah. Uh, where we are now is that coal has gone from 50% to below to about 25%. We have seen natural gas go up a little bit, and nuclear has gone down mm-hmm. a little bit. But a large part of the of the new energy is coming from coming from renewables. Um, and so, what that means is that we're going to see instead of big power plants, instead of one big nuclear plant or one big coal or gas plant, we're going to see thousands of buildings with solar up on the rooftop. We're going to start to see hmm. uh, some wind turbines being put offshore 10 miles off the coast, 15 miles off the coast where you can't even see it. You'll see some fields with solar panels on them, parking lots with solar panels on them. You'll see windmills here and there. And then you're also going to see, particularly over the next few years, uh, a lot more energy storage so that when the wind isn't blowing or the sun doesn't <laughs> isn't shining, you still have electricity because you're storing it from when we had a lot. Well, I think that's a key point because uh, he, just last week, uh, Donald Trump again said, you know, wind, wind doesn't work because the wind doesn't blow all the time. Yeah. yeah you know, that's <laughs> he a, says that over and over again. That is right? factually correct. And it is true that every day the sun goes down. Mm-hmm. But that's we, we know that that's going to happen. It's not a shock at the end of every day. And so we can store the energy 
for when we need it. It's actually not that difficult to do. Right. Uh, what's the rest of the world doing? Are they ahead of us on, in this score? In a lot of ways they are, yeah. So um, countries like China and India are, they want to dominate the 21st century, literally, not just through slogans. They want to dominate energy production in the 21st century, just like the United States dominated in the 20th century with fossil fuels. They're saying, obviously, we can't use fossil fuels this century like, like we did the last. So let's invest in the future. Well, it's funny you mentioned China and India because they're considered the two biggest polluters along they, with the United States. They right? are. And so to be really clear, they are doing two different things, both countries. They, are, uh, they have been building new coal plants and hmm. dramatically at an incredible pace, increasing the amount of solar and wind and electric cars, electric buses, electric motorcycles and bicycles for, for uh, the people who live in those countries. They're, they're starting to shut down their coal plants and move even more to renewables. Um, but it's, it's not a simple picture where they're only moving to renewables. They're also scaling up, or have been scaling up at least, a lot of their coal plants. You mentioned electric cars. Mm -hmm. um, why have they been taken off more than they have? Uh, you should ask GM, and you should ask Ford and Chrysler and all these companies that have failed to innovate and to respond to consumer demand. What we're seeing is um, we have Tesla, obviously, that's making nothing right. but electric cars. And most of the rest of the automakers are making a couple models. Mm -hmm. you know, they'll make right. lots of models of traditional gas. Do think, but cars. do you think the market is there? Obviously, they don't or they'd be making more. Tesla can't make enough cars for its uh, for the demand that's out there. Yeah, There's and they're not cheap. No, they're not cheap. No, right. right. This is true. They're not cheap. Yeah. Um, and still, they can't make enough cars for their right. for their customers. I do think that we're seeing a big surge in the use uh, and purchase of electric vehicles, but we're not seeing enough uh, demand or sorry, enough supply coming from the major automakers just yet. Right. But that is also starting to change. We're starting to see, again, in California, there is a ban being discussed on the internal combustion engine. Mm -hmm. uh, we've seen uh, a number of other countries in Europe who are beginning to uh, adopt policies that will transition off of gas-guzzling vehicles altogether. So uh, on, on that one, we're not moving as quickly as we need to, but there's some glimmers of hope. Is it too late on climate change? <laughs> you know, we, every every report Monday morning. I know, uh, but every <clears throat> report comes out, you know, saying yeah. if we don't do something in the next twenty years or yeah. thirty years or whatever, and 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 here we have with all the yeah. progress that we made under President Obama, we've really gone backwards in a big way under Donald. We have, we have, and. Um, and it is rough. Climate change has already happened. It's already here. Yeah. We're already. Yeah. So in that respect, it is too late. We're about 20 years too late, at least, uh, to avoid some pretty serious effects. More severe droughts, more severe wildfires like we're seeing in California and other places, more extreme weather events, more people who will become refugees because of a lack of access to clean drinking water. So it is already a severe problem. We know that it'll get worse. The biggest climate study, arguably, in history came out last fall from the International Panel on Climate mm -hmm. Change. And it said that we have until 2030, we have 11 years now, yeah. uh, to avoid irreversible effects uh, of global warming. And we have, tw we have uh, 11 more years in order to dramatically reduce emissions so that no matter what we do, 
uh, it'll get worse. And so, um, so all of these changes that we've been talking about over the last few minutes about states or cities mm -hmm. or companies moving to 100% renewable energy, that is what we need to do. So I, I would say it on climate change, it's psychologically confounding because the more the more studies that you read, the more dark it gets, right. the more depressing it gets, the more urgent the need for action becomes. And then the more that you read about how we are starting, barely, but starting to respond at the scale and at the pace that we need, when you see all mm -hmm. of these states, all of these cities, all of these companies moving to clean energy, when you know that they will save money in doing so, so it'll be self-reinforcing, then you think we might have a shot. Right. Um, I imagine the CR Club uh, would still accept new members, right? <laughs> we do. We're at our, our record high for membership uh, right. over but, 125 years. So sign up. SierraClub.org. Thanks, Michael, so much for coming in. So good to see you. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Bill. John Allen next from He's NBC News. Press show. Hey, friends. Don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of the Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show, and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And Republicans are still trying to figure out why did Donald Trump say we want to trash all of Obamacare, even protection for people with pre-existing conditions. Well, when they figure it out, they can let us know what he's up to. Hello, everybody. What do you say? Here we go. It's a Monday, April Fool's Day of 2019. So uh, don't believe anything you see or hear today, except what you hear on the uh, Bill Press show. Great to have you with us. Hope you had a good weekend and are ready to dive into all the news uh, of this week. We always need a little help getting through the news of the day. Couldn't do any better than here as a friend of Bill from NBC News, the one and only John Allen. Oh, John, it's good to see you. It's good to see you. Uh, happy, happy April Fool's Day. We we decided April Fool's, who do we want in? Oh, let's get John Allen in today. <laughs> I was thinking when I got the text from Peter that it, that was exactly what happened. Um, Joke's on you, Johnny boy. <laughs> and as part of the April Fool's uh, new tradition, perhaps, here on the Bill Press uh -oh. Show, we are both wearing checked purple shirts. Oh, wow. Yours isn't that purple. It's, it's purple and blue. Purple and purple blue checks. And blue. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Well, <laughs> okay, we got the memo. Yeah, I mean, your your wife and my wife obviously have similarly good taste. Because I know you didn't pick out that good outfit, and I know I didn't pick out my outfit. I was just going to say, if anybody thinks that Carol takes the time the night before to lay out my clothes that I'm going to wear the next day, they don't know Carol. Now, I was suggesting more that she might have said, at some point in the past, like maybe oh. you should buy that sweater or buy that <laughs> oh, shirt. Not the, not being my valet. Yeah, not yeah. picking them out the night before <laughs> like you were six years old. 
All right. So we got lots to talk about here. More important topics for sure. Uh, your comments always welcome on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. And John and I will get started with you. But first, this is the Full Court Press. All righty. Just a couple of other stories making news. Okay. So let's just all agree that uh, drunk driving is very, very bad. But in Taiwan, they are tri- they are taking extreme measures to try and curb drunk driving. Yeah, okay. They have actually suggested the death penalty to anybody that causes a fatal accident while drunk driving. This is a movement that is uh, taking hold in the cabinet in Taiwan. Will it actually happen? Well, I don't know. They're they're debating it right now. But it seems like a extreme measure. Yeah, I mean, I'm just I'm against the death penalty. Period. That, that's the that's the correct answer. I mean, obviously, drunk driving is terrible. If you kill somebody because of it, you should you should face some very right severe consequences, right? But the death penalty? Yeah, well, I mean, I I think that more is a fun, as Bill points out, maybe more a function of whether or not you believe in the death penalty. If you drink and drive and cause an accident that causes someone to die, you would think that you should have a pretty harsh penalty for that. Pretty harsh yeah. penalty. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can see what people say is the equivalent of murder, right? Right. Yeah. But all right. So uh, the throw Rolling the key away. That's my answer. Yeah. Oh, the, yeah. The, the Rolling Stones were about to embark on a big tour. <laughs> still, still going strong. Well, over the weekend, they had to announce that they are postponing their latest tour so that Mick Jagger can receive medical treatment. Now, they were not specific about what kind of medical treatment, which has led fans to speculate wildly, but they put out a statement saying that the doctor told Jagger, quote, he cannot go on tour at this time. They also added that Jagger is expected to make a complete recovery, so he will be back on stage as soon as he can. Again, Mick Jagger, 75 years old. Uh, they did not give any update as to what the condition is. I remember is. the last tour they were saying, you know, this is the last we'll ever see Mick Jagger, and he bouncing, he was bouncing around stage like an 18-year-old. I right? mean, I would just recommend two mothers little helpers and uh, see him in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, they, they have... They have have lasted a very, very, very long time. Also, note that it was not Keith Richards who is no. indestructible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Keith Richards is going to be around forever. It's like, what's, what's, what's that? They can survive a nuclear blast, cockroaches, and <laughs> Keith Richards. This is the Bill Press Show. Hey, if you didn't like my emergency declaration, uh, how are you going to like this? I'm going to just shut down the entire border. Donald Trump has been talking about it for a long time. He says he's going to do it this week, and he not, he's tired of playing games. Well, we'll see how that works out. Hello, everybody. What do you say? On a Monday, April 1st, April Fool's Day, here we go. It is the Bill Press Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for being with us. Uh, From coast to coast, uh, online, on the radio, and on television. Uh, Looking at you on Free Speech TV. That's the TV side. Joining you out in Chicago on the great WCPT. uh, And uh, online, all around the globe, on YouTube, youtube.com slash the Bill Press Show. Here, a national political reporter from NBC News, 
Sticking with us for the next hour as a friend of Bill, our good friend John Allen. John, always good to see you. Thanks for coming in. I'm honored <laughs> by being a, a friend of Bill. Well, you should be because I have so few friends. No, I just. <laughs> You're part of a very small community. <laughs> I didn't mean it that way. I know, I know. But it's always good to see you. So you've been, you you picked up on something that I, I find. What do they say that revenge is a meal that's best served cold, cold right? Yeah. Not for Donald Trump, man. The day, Piping hot revenge. Right. The day the Mueller report came out, right, his first response was, I'm going to get those a-holes that did this to me, and I want to find out how this how this investigation got started and go after those people who were behind it. Yeah, I mean, I suspect and, that— uh, some of his other people have picked this up, right? Well, I suspect that part of this is sort of gut-level response, but a lot of it is also strategy, right? He's moving from defense to offense. Mm-hmm. This is an opportunity. He hasn't had the ability to really do that while he was under investigation for obstruction. Yeah, yeah. right. I mean, yeah. his hands were really tied. He goes after uh, Adam Schiff, Jerry Nadler, uh, the investigators. I mean, he went after Mueller some, um, and who knows what the Mueller report says about that. My guess is he figured he was probably pretty safe going after the investigator. Right. That the investigator would look bad if he took issue with that specifically, but who knows? We'll see. See, But I think he felt somewhat constrained during the investigation. So now he can go on offense, and what it does is it puts the people who would be investigating him uh, a, at least a little bit on their heels, makes it so a little who are harder the people, who are the Who are his targets? Well, really, uh, Adam Schiff, he's calling Little Pencil Neck Adam, the yeah. uh, chairman of the House Intelligence Committee. Jerry Nadler, the uh, House Judiciary Chairman, he went after uh, the other day. He is uh, targeting the news media. All of these are people who have the ability to continue um, the investigation into not only what Mueller was looking into, whatever seeds he may have dropped from his investigation, um, and certainly the House members, the ability to uh, potentially look at impeachment. And I know Nancy Pelosi is saying she's not interested yeah, in it, but yeah. um, they have the ability to continue to pursue those leads, but also anything, sort of anything else that's out there. The um, Comey? Still. He's going after Comey. He's going after, I mean, implicitly at least, or or as part of uh, what he calls the deep state, right? So then there's the whole set of characters uh, that he believes are part of a conspiracy to uh, deny the legitimacy of his election, to hamper his presidency, and to either impeach him or deny him a second term. And that is all of the folks at the FBI and the Justice Department that were involved in the original uh, FBI investigation of his campaign, all of those folks who were involved in the Mueller investigation, uh, Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, you know, you you name it, uh, basically anyone he believes isn't loyal to him that was part of this. And look, if you are on the president's side uh, and you look at this story, you go, wow, there's uh, a lot of um, a lot of things that fell into place here uh, within the government and, you know, people who are close to uh, you know, essentially close to the uh, the Obama administration and then continuing after it that were involved in this. And of course, that makes some sense because the government uh, agencies operate with each other and the members of the government communicate with each other when they're investigating something. Right. Well, he also says, well, you got to find, we're going to go after, find out how this got, and I know Lindsey Graham is saying this, we want to, we want to investigate how this got started, Right. Don't we know how this whole investigation got started? Yes. I mean, right? This the is fact, like— uh, George Papadopoulos was bad-mouthing ma- all over Europe 
that I've got these Russian contacts who are giving us dirt on Hillary. And somebody found out about the FBI found out about that. And that's when they started looking into this whole thing. Right. right. And I mean, there's there are also multiple threads. Right. So and maybe that's what to yeah, some extent uh, what Graham is saying. What was that the first thread? Was it the only thread where there are other pieces of information that were coming? Were they looking for something like that to come in? I mean, you know, like with any with any sort of story, um, you know, I could ask you a simple question like, how did this radio right. show get started? And you yeah. would say, well, I was talking to this person and somebody else would say, well, actually, you know, there was a seat over here. Mm-hmm. So maybe Lindsey Graham wants to talk about that. But in in some ways, it's rem- maybe reminiscent of um, the, the Benghazi investigations where they, you know, there was a, a four years spent investigating uh, the Benghazi terrorist attacks in uh, Libya to discover that four Americans were killed in a terrorist attack, which was known on day one. Right. Uh, also, and, oh, and by the way, that the Secretary of State didn't Secretary. kill any of those people, nor did the President of the United States, nor did they take any actions designed to, you know, to to um, make it more difficult to to save those people, like not calling in the Air Force or whatever. Yeah. Um, isn't it also somewhat, at least somewhat? hypocritical for Donald Trump to go after the people who question the legitimacy of his presidency, he believes that's their motivation, when we've most people found out about Donald Trump when he was questioning for five years the legitimacy of Barack Obama's presidency. Um, you're not going to get me to say that the president is a hypocrite. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't ask you that. I you said, think, do you it say is somewhat hypocritical. Yeah. Uh, um, I, and I, I think most people did not find out about Donald Trump through birtherism. I would say that uh, he did question the legitimacy of President Barack Obama uh, because if you are to say that President Obama was not born in the United States, that would question uh, yeah. one of the few pillars, or one of the few <laughs> qualifications for being president of the United States uh, under the Constitution. And he spent a lot of time and money and energy uh, mo- you know, pushing behind that birther movement uh, that obviously was ridiculous, based in nothing, and um, you know, uh, I would say beyond mildly racist. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to ask you about uh, the story that uh, was uh, important enough to lead the CBS News last night. I, with all, because NBC had some sports on, I didn't get to see NBC News last night, uh, and that is um, whether or not Joe Biden is disqualified now from running for president, according to. His accuser, Lucy Flores, his action five years ago, putting his hand on her shoulder, giving her a kiss on the back of her head, disqualifies, is disqualifying from running for president. Well, he's uh, he was born in the United States. Uh, he's 35 years old, at least, uh, more than twice that. Uh, so, I mean, you know, from the, that perspective, he's, he's qualified. Um, she also says, in effect, uh, I'm putting a little, to a certain extent, paraphrasing, that the problem is, that we would spend all of our time trying to um, distinguish Joe Biden from Donald Trump and that therefore it would be impossible for the Democrats. And I think that's important. I think we're in a moment, well not only in a moment, I think for the rest of our lives and and positively so, uh, we should listen to stories of men abusing their power uh, with with women, and this is a story of a man ab- abusing his power. Uh, you know, that's the allegation, right? That he did something that he wouldn't have been able to do otherwise, and she felt demeaned by it. She says in her her piece, she doesn't even think of it as as sexual per se, but very 
you know, awkward. But I think the key here is that she's a she is somebody who was in a uh, a political race and who is making the point because of the politics because she thinks Joe Biden would be defeated. Um, and I think that that is somewhat different in kind than some of the other allegations. I thought what was does it on that point. Does it take away from her the fact that she was a Bernie supporter in 2016, was a board member of our revolution, and was at the Beto O'Rourke rally on Saturday, the day before she appeared on CNN? I don't think so. But I, but I think if others judge it differently, then they'll judge it differently. I mean, again, she says she felt uncomfortable. I believe, I her. believe I, her that she feels uncomfortable. Totally. I, I, like, I don't mean to, to take away from that. I do think that it's worth looking at the context that she provides on her own to her credit to say that this is, you know, that there's a political angle to this, which is she believes that that Joe Biden would be defeated going up against Trump. And so I think that that is different in kind, even than those women who come forward and say, I'm coming forward now because I see somebody who's about to gain more power. And I worry about what that power means for women who are around them. Right. Like that's. That is also a different thing um, and is, uh, you know, I think is, um, I want to choose my words carefully here, but if you say you want to prevent somebody from gaining power, then that, uh, then there's a reason to come forward at a time uh, when they are about to gain that power that is different than saying, I think this person's going to lose and that's why I'm coming forward. Um, All that said, the key is... And as Vice President Biden said, listen to what people say. She said this made her feel awkward. We've seen photos of the vice president. We've seen the actions of the vice president over time. There is uh, there's a handsiness, a familiarity that he has that is, whether it's particular to him, particular to a generation, is certainly not normal for today's generation. And I think that if he's going to be, and I hate to use the term in touch, but I think if he's going to show that he is the modern presidential candidate that stuff certainly not got it's got to not continue on the campaign trail um and uh, you know it's not for me to judge what Lu- lucy flores's experience was or whether this is something that will affect the way other people vote for or against joe biden if he runs i would say one other thing i thought the more devastating piece of, uh, uh, against joe biden this weekend was written in the cut by rebecca traster um, it basically appeared as almost like a sidecar piece uh, where she went through Joe Biden's career and essentially made the case uh, that for the last 50 years he's been showing Democrats that he is insufficiently progressive. Um, and, uh, and that that is and if you read her piece, I would say, that that strain of thinking is probably going to be more effective, meaning on policy things that he has done. Like for from, example, one thing on abortion, he was he was not pro-choice always. Correct. He was and, against the Roe versus Wade decision. Right. Go through. I mean, and you literally the, go the through Anita the Hill hearing, and he's going to have yeah. to apologize for almost every major stand he's taken over the last fifty years. Or almost every state he's taken on a major policy over the last 50 years, the Iraq war. I mean, you go through, which he's already apologized for, you go through all of those things. And and, and at the conclusion, this is Tracer's argument, but I, I think it's true in terms of what he's going to have to defend on the trail. 
if his argument to the Democratic voters and to the to the national electorate is, I have the best judgment to be president of the United States, the question is going to be, why did you have to spend all this time apologizing for your record? Right. Isn't it? Uh, I don't want to get away too far from the Biden thing. I want to come back, to, but to, to your point there, um, almost every one of the candidates has had to do some some what of a some kind of an apology tour so far. Um, Elizabeth Warren because how she bungled the Native American stuff. Kamala Harris because she was a tough ass prosecutor. Um, you know Kirsten Gillibrand because she was too close to the NRA. Cory Booker because he's Goldman Sachs. I mean, I think I, I, I'm not saying Joe Biden doesn't have a longer list, maybe, but he's got some stuff too. We, so far as I know, Pete Buttigieg. Well, Cory Booker. I'm not Cory. I'm sorry, Beto O'Rourke. Everybody says you know he was a do nothing, uh, middle of the road at best member of Congress, right? Well, you know, I've been through his voting record, and I know that he gets hit from the from Bernie Sanders world for being too moderate and he has sort of apologized for being too moderate on yeah, some things yeah. or, or apologized the wrong he said he regretted a vote on uh, you know on on law enforcement stuff uh, but I think if you go through his record there's actually a lot of instances where he was far to the left of where the the uh, sort of mainstream Democrats are so it'll be interesting to see how that plays over time. I, haven't, I don't think Pete Buttigieg just had to apologize for anything yet. Has he? Most of us are not terribly familiar with the sewer systems and potholes of South Bend, Indiana, yet, <laughs> and that may that may well change. I'll bet somebody's got to come out with a pothole in the back street of Indiana that he promised to fill. And to this day, that pothole still exists. I mean, I, I read I read his book. <laughs> or a streetlight that's not on. I read his book, so I've heard his side of well, the South Bend story. But I imagine that reporters will be descending, national reporters will be descending on South Bend pretty quickly, as he has announced this morning. $7 million in campaign contributions for the first quarter. And we'll, we will, of course, assess that when the reports come out and see how much of that is primary and how much of it is general and how much of it's small donor and how much of it's big donor and all those things. But if you're Pete Buttigieg, you got to be feeling pretty good this morning that you uh, run a town of uh, a city of 100,000 people and you were able to raise $7 million in a Democratic primary in the first quarter. I think it's hugely uh, impressive, $7 million. You know, um, yeah, uh, People will hear Beto the message. Got six point one million overnight, right? Yeah, and but, another million yesterday. So he does seven million in two days. Yeah, um, but but for Buttigieg to uh, again, probably the least known of all the candidates, right? I mean, right. The, the, I don't think there's and there. The, the, I bet you the, Tulsi Gabbard, Julian Julian Castro, don't come anywhere close to seven million. Right. He he will beat some. Candidates who had much bigger platforms to start, and it will be interesting to see. Kirsten Gillibrand. I was about to say he's going to beat yeah. some senators. I mm-hmm. think that, and if he does, if there are senators, there may be senators who edge him out by having done big dollar general election campaign fundraising. Mm-hmm. Um, my guess is that most of Buttigieg's is for for the primary. Um, you're going to see you're going to see other people's numbers who should have bigger numbers look small. In by terms comparison. of the fundraising, have some people? Do you believe? I'm thinking particularly of Elizabeth Warren, hurt themselves or hurt herself in her case by saying, I'm not going to do, do, take any big checks. Or I'm not going to I'm not going to make any effort anyway to get any big checks. If you can't get small donors to give, you need to get big donors to give because you need the money to make your case. Now, 
If you're Elizabeth Warren, you're going to get the 65,000 donors across the 50 states. Oh, no, for sure, gonna... to make the so debate. So you're going to but... get onto the debate stage. Oh, yeah. But right. if you're Elizabeth Warren, that's not the game you're playing. Right, yeah. If you're Elizabeth Warren, you should be building campaign offices in California right now, right? And and maybe they are building campaign offices in California, but they need money on a different scale. Um, she's still somebody who could in the sort of, you know, who could kind of catch fire. But for her to do that, she's basically going to have to steal it from Bernie Sanders. I was going to say, I think Elizabeth Warren's challenge is, why me, why me and not Bernie, right? Because right. they're basically, to me, the same candidate, right? I disagree, but I mean, I think they appeal to some of the same electorate, but I do think they're very different. They're different, but they're, they're the two, would you agree, they're the two most left candidates, right? Yes. Basically both going for the same constituency or base, if you will. Bernie was there first because he was there in 2016. Bernie raised, Bernie's kept that base alive. Bernie's raised more money from that. I'm not, by the way, I'm not supporting anybody. I'm just trying to analytically look at it. She gave up her lane in 16 by not running. She did. And Bernie took it and ran with it. So now she's got to say, okay, you're you're single payer. You're, you're, you know, as left as I am. Go with me. Don't go with Bernie again this time. Yeah, that's the... That's the argument, and one of the arguments is Bernie didn't win the, the primary last right. time, and maybe right. she should start doing that, but it doesn't seem like she, she's ready to start throwing left hooks at, at so, Bernie Sanders. Um, and, uh, you know, look, I think that they're different in, in a couple of different ways. Um, number one, I think um, Bernie has a uh, sort of a broad platform view of the left um, and will take left positions on almost everything. Um, I think that she's producing the policy ideas. Um, and and I think that's a difference in, in sort of kind between them. Um, that said, I look at her policy positions, the stuff she's rolling out, and a lot of them look like the same, like kind of a cookie cutter approach to all the different <laughs> uh, different sectors, right? Yeah. Like, um, it's basically but, break them all up, or or even Glass Steagall for the tech industry, and so there's some. But I but I do think that she's got a, a greater sort of she's interest out, in bringing I think she's them. She's put out. out more big new ideas this time than anybody else, for sure. But but you can't take away what Bernie put these out in 2016. To a certain extent, now people are running on the big issues that he threw out in 2016. So, too, certainly so. for some of them, yeah, and and so yeah, I. But they are running a, a, across each other. And Bernie got that platform first. And, you know, I think yeah, she might yeah. have looked at it and said that there are people across the country who love me, and that may be true, but they didn't love her on a presidential level the way that they loved Bernie Sanders on a presidential level in 2016. Right. Uh, I saw a poll yesterday that I wanted to ask you about. This was from the Harvard Institute of Politics, just looking at millennials for 2020, 18 to 29. I'm not real high on millennials because <laughs> it's just not nice. It's not nice, Bill. Uh, I'm sorry. They don't vote. I mean, mean, look, you've got them behind the glass here. Ray is definitely a millennial. (laughs) Peter will always pretend to be the next generation. They're the exceptions. I'm not a millennial. He's not a millennial. He's a Gen Xer. Look at him. He looks like a Gen Xer. Yeah. I don't know if the camera can can the camera get you? The camera's always on me, buddy. All right. So the camera knows where the. But let me give you the number. So they looked at 18 to 29. So definition. Okay. and they said, okay, but the people who are running now, who do you like best? Bernie, 31%. Joe Biden, 20%. Beto was third, but down at 10%. So, like, the two oldest guys 
get the votes of the youngest people. What's going on? Young people are like, people my age shouldn't be running things. And old people are like, people my age shouldn't be running things. I think what you're going to find is that the older voters are going to look at some of the young people and be like, I like the cut of that you know, young Kennedy's jib, you know? And, and do people even say, even old people now don't say cut of the jib because old people now are hippies. They're like more likely to be, you know, yeah. free loving it with drugs in the in the retirement home. But, but is it that the experience that they like or they just think, you know, they're like granddad or whatever. They, they've been around so long they must know. It's the, it's the Betty doing. White factor. You know, like, remember she got really, really cool for a while a few years ago, yeah. like the young yes. generation yes. discovered her yes. after a Super Bowl commercial. Right. So it's like Bernie was like the Betty White candidate of 2016. And, uh, you know, maybe he will be that in 2020. I I do think that there is something to younger voters, especially on the Democratic side, younger voters looking and saying, uh, you know, maybe we need somebody who's been there for a while. And and, and I do think older voters are going to look at some of these younger candidates, look at the Beto O'Rourke's and, and uh, Pete Buttigieg's and say... Uh, maybe or maybe Kamala Harris's, and say maybe I want somebody uh, who is a generational change agent for my children and my grandchildren. Uh, I, I just don't. I I think we see yeah. this in politics, right? I mean, yeah, and we all start with. I'm not premise. shocked by it. <laughs> we start with the premise that all these early polls are meaningless. We always say that, but then we end up talking about them anyhow. Well, I mean, we've got to talk about something. <laughs> um, so and don't discriminate against the polls. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, so back to Biden for just a second. Do you think this has any impact on whether or not uh, Joe gets in the race? Do you, meaning, do you still expect him to run? And while you're at it, are there any other wannabes out there that might still get in other than Wayne Messam, who came in last week? I'm By the way, suddenly I've gotten on his email list, too. Oh, man. Yeah. I don't know how we keep getting you on these emails. You should have him on the air. I would. But he's got yeah, to come to Washington. But he's got to raise, you know, a certain amount of money from sixty-five thousand people in donors front. first. Sixty-five thousand people. Does in he have to raise it for the show, or is that illegal? I don't know how that works. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll help him raise it if he comes in, right? Um, the yeah. The only candidate that we've had so far is Andrew Wang. Don't forget him either. Andrew Yang. 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 You can't. Yeah. Don't don't mess that up because he's the one with the circumcision policy or the anti-circumcision That's right. policy. That's right. So you want right. to be careful not to mix up your. No, that's one of his. That's one of his the big planks. We didn't talk platform. about that. When anti- we were in. I know he he developed that a little bit better after he was here on the show. He's anti. He's yes. anti circumcision. Would he ban it? I don't know if he's said. I don't that. know if he would. I forget exactly what the policy is. I didn't read too deeply into it. Has this ever been an issue on a presidential? You can't camp? ban it. You can't ban no. circumcision because you would run into uh, yeah, all first, kinds of religious yeah, first amendment religious issues, issues. Yeah. right? Yeah. But I mean, has this been a presidential issue before? I hope not. <laughs> I yeah, really right. think I really think the government's getting like deeply into your personal space. There, this is my. <laughs> I do too. I'm tempted to think about bumper stickers, but I don't want to go there because I'm afraid all of us would get in trouble. Yes, if we go. that's all right. right. So let's just yeah. all right. Back to my question: <laughs> Is this going to impact Joe's decision about getting in or get, or not? And are there any others that you see waiting in the wings, like a Terry McAuliffe or somebody? Uh, you asked if I still expected Joe Biden to get into the race. I'm still expecting him to get into the 16 race. Yeah. <laughs> so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I expect, I still expect him to run just like I think everybody else does. Um, but what is intended by, I think, a lot of the news that has come out 
lately, and I don't mean this from the media perspective, but I think you know people talking about him and talking about him running is you know give him a moment of pause mm-hmm. to say, do is this the way that I want my legacy to end potentially if he doesn't win? Do you really want to do this? Yeah. Um, right. And as far as other candidates go, um, I think you know Michael Bennett uh, from Colorado, the senator, oh, could still run. About he's him. he's yeah, still okay. thinking about running. Uh, I believe Seth Moulton has not announced a candidacy yet, and it is um, somebody who uh, I believe is likely to run. Um, so there are a couple couple more people out there. And McAuliffe? Uh, Terry McAuliffe is on the radio, I think, right now in Virginia. Uh, it could be that he's announcing this morning or announcing that he's not running this morning. In fact, maybe I should look at my... Yeah, let's all do know. that uh, during this break. We'll find out. If there are any candidates who announce, <laughs> who've announced what we've been on the air talking about it. Uh, in fact, we will take a break. When we come back, Elena Platt joins us from uh, the Atlantic. She covers the White House for the Atlantic, and we'll find out what's going on there uh, this week uh, um, at the White House and uh, more talk about when we might see the final Mueller report with all the background, uh, backup information for it. If ever. It is Monday, April Fool's Day, 2019. The Bill Press Show. Give us a quick break and we'll be right back. This is the Bill Press Show. And here we are on a Monday, April 1, April Fool's Day, the Bill Press Show. Great to see you today. Thank you so much for being with us as we boom out to you coast to coast from our studio right here on Capitol Hill. In our nation's capital, brought to you today by the American Federation of Government Employees, are the men and women who keep our federal agencies running day in and day out, serving the American public, and not just in Washington, but all around the country. We thank them and for their support of the program. Direct you to their website at afge.org. From NBC News, National Political uh, reporter John Allen here is a friend of Bill for the entire hour. John, again, good to have you on board. And we're joined by, from the Atlantic, covering the White House for the Atlantic, Elena Plot. Hi, Elena. Nice Hi, to see you. Thanks for having me. Right. So um, it's going to be a big week this week. We're going to um, shut down the border. That's what Donald Trump said uh, yesterday, uh, announcing, he said, uh, Peter, if we can, that uh, um, he's tired of playing games. They don't stop him with closing the border. They'll close it, and we'll we'll keep it closed for a long time. I'm not playing games. Not playing games. Uh, has he done it, or is, is he going to do it, or is this just a, another empty threat, or what do we know? I like to think of it the way I thought about the national emergency, which is to say that um, Trump speaks in really apocalyptic rhetoric about the border and claims that something needs to be done right this moment, except it doesn't happen right this moment because it's not actually (laughs) an emergency in his eyes. Um, So I don't, you know, I I think it's hard for me to say whether this is something that will actually happen. It could be something uh, where midweek Donald Trump spins out some theory that they have, in fact, built more walls. So, you know, there's no need to do it. But at this point, I think it's just a wait and see. Here's my question is, what does shutting the border, talk about closing the border, we're talking about closing the ports of entry, whereby people and products and goods come in every day, right? Legally through a a regular port of entry, Mm -hmm. is what they call it. What does that have to do with people who are trying to cross the border illegally somewhere, you know, on the Texas border or something? I don't think it has much to do with it at all. Two different Um, issues. But I think that 
just the phrase in and of itself, close the border, um, sounds impressive to someone like Donald Trump. And covering this White House, I think you find time and again that, um, you know, Donald Trump will get on Twitter or he'll get um, on the stump at a rally and he'll say something and his aides suddenly, you know, say to themselves, we have no idea what he means by that. We have no idea how to carry this out. I mean, it really is a constant problem. And another great example is when Trump tweeted that he was going to have the FBI looking into the Jesse Smollett case in Chicago, mm -hmm. the fact that, um, mm -hmm. you know, charges were dropped. Um, a lot of aides don't, you know, we're still in this space where aides don't know whether to interpret that as an actual order or it's mm. just the president tweeting about something. And based on my reporting, nothing has been done to that effect. You know, no instructions have formally been given to the FBI or the DOJ to look more deeply into that case in Chicago. So, I, you know, you have to wonder whether it's a parallel scenario here. So, John, uh, I saw last night that every day $1.7 billion in goods comes across, comes through these ports of entry from Mexico in terms of products and, you know, food, vegetables, all that Not kind of counting stuff. the opioids. Not counting the opioids. Right. Let's say legal, yeah, right. legal products, right? That would have a hell of an impact on the economy. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, the reason that people say that it would be unlikely that the president would close the border is that uh, it could have a significant impact on the economy, which would have uh, sort of two immediate uh, and and sort of midterm responses. One is uh, the business community would get very angry at the president, and two, um, the economy could actually take a hit, and the president is trying to campaign on a strong economy. So uh, for those reasons, you would expect that he wouldn't shut down the border. It also would point up the fact that most of the stuff that comes across the border <laughs> comes across through ports of entry because that's what the president would be able to shut down, obviously not able to shut down the places yeah. where there aren't entry points. Um, so you wonder whether that policy or the one that he announced this week, uh, you know, where he wants to um, cut off aid to Central American well, countries, I think in this which case is count, potentially counted. Right. right, he right. He did cut off yeah. aid to Central American countries, which also has a sort of counterproductivity to it in that it seems more likely that you would uh, foster new caravans uh, by making those countries poorer um, than you would be likely to stop migration and possibly caravans. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I think these are policies that have not been put through a policy process. Um, and as Elena suggests, there are going to be people scrambling to fill in the details uh, at the White House. And that's been uh, been the way that this has operated for two years. Right. Uh, I want to get your take on that, too. But here's Donald Trump yesterday again saying about we're cutting off aid to these three countries. We were giving them $500 million. We're giving them tremendous aid. We stopped payment to Honduras, to Guatemala, and to El Salvador. So, Elena, I heard, first of all, <laughs> we know that Fox News identified <laughs> these three countries as the three Mexican, Mexican. Mm -hmm. countries. Uh, it wasn't even like a joke, right? Yeah, they, I'm drinking uh, my coffee to process it still. <laughs> <laughs> That's how they see them in, in Fox News, the three Mexican countries. Those must be Mexican coffee beans. Mm. Oh, because yeah. if all of Central and South America is Mexico, then probably you're. But we closed the border, so they're not actually. Uh, oh. We don't. We didn't have access to go. them. Yeah. But there were members <laughs> of the administration who privately said, 
as John does indicate, this is counterproductive. I mean, we are giving them aid, mm-hmm. and there, we do see to, to improve their economy and to reduce the violence so that less, fewer people will flee. And, and we've actually seen so, some progress, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and yet <laughs> cut off, cutting off aid is only going to make it worse. As strange as this sounds, I th- I almost think it's counterproductive for us to have a rational argument about this because, you know, <laughs> well, the success of Donald Trump's campaign was that he just said whatever sounded good, um, which is to say, like, uh, Mexico's going to we're going to build the wall and Mexico is going to pay for it. There's never a sit down moment where you're planning um you know, in in the preceding days to say, how is Mexico actually going to pay for this? What would it actually take to fund a border wall? Uh, it's And the same thing with close the border. It really is just something that I think to a lot of Trump-based voters sounds good. You know, a lot of illegal immigrants are coming, so just close the border. And, you know, it's on the, the backside that you know, all of these things start to fall apart. But to actually talk about this as we're saying and say, well, that seems counterproductive because we're talking about ports of entry or that seems counterproductive because it just could foster more caravans if we cut off aid to these countries. That I mean, it's just we're talking in an entirely different, um, you know, realm of facts and reason than he's dealing with when he says it in the first place or in this case does it. But these are different. But these are different in that with closing off the border, it's uh, it's hypothetical. With reducing aid to other countries, mm-hmm. it's real. Um, and so with the things that are done that are real, you actually have to deal with the fallout of the consequences of those things. And they are policies that uh, that have effects, whereas, um, you know, the rhetoric may have some effect, but it's a much lighter effect than the thing that you mm-hmm. actually implement. Mm-hmm. I-, I must say, I think that's maybe the best advice I've heard in the last two years of for, in terms of our job of reporting on, or as, even as American citizens dealing with the Trump White House, White House, which is don't try to have any rational conversation about anything that happens there because it's so different from our total experience, right? It it, it assumes that they do things in a some kind of a rational way or through a decision-making process, there's no, which you there's, said earlier. There, doesn't there's exist. no yeah. decision-making process. Yeah. There's no. no policy process. Right. No and to the extent process, that the, no deci- right. So you have to have conversations on their terms. I mean, as a reporter, you really have to deal within the sphere of what – it's almost psychological in a way. You know, what's going on in his head that would make him think that this is a fine thing to say and how do AIDS, you know, continue to grapple with that? Which gets to a decision announced last week about health care, where suddenly, um, the, he, even though the attorney general reportedly has recommended against it, he instructs the Department of Justice to, fi- to go into this Texas courtroom and, and join forces with the state attorneys general who want to kill Obamacare, all of it, all, all the mm-hmm. provisions of it. Um, Peter King, who's usually a very loyal no, I wouldn't call him a Trumper, but he's very loyal mm-hmm. to the Republican Party, Republican message. Uh, yesterday, from Peter King from Long Island says, what are we doing this for? You can't just undo a health care plan that's in place the way this is. Again, whether we like it or not, it's there. And it's become part of the everyday fabric of uh, the average American family. And so he says, this is something that he went on to say, 
uh, the person responsible for it, of course, is the now acting chief of staff again, Peter King. Mulvaney has been, uh, uh, again, he's, it was part of the Freedom Caucus. He was always uh, obstructing things when he was in the House. And now he has the uh, direct ear of the president, direct line to the president. So I would probably blame Mulvaney. But the- is that what you're reporting? Elena? That's what I'm hearing. I don't know if you're hearing that, John, but um, Mick Mulvaney was somebody who he was part of that group of lawmakers that kind of were swept in as part of their promise to repeal Obamacare, as part of their promise to slash spending. And it was a huge embarrassment for people like that, especially in the House when um, the Trump administration or Congress rather failed to repeal Obamacare and replace with their own plan. So I, you know, two White House sources tell me that this has been Mulvaney's crusade from the moment he got into the White House. And it's another thing where when Trump just sort of decided that the Republican Party would be the party of health care, Congress didn't really get the memo on that. You know, the rest of his party didn't get the memo. It was sort of a thing that was decided in the West Wing. And now you have somebody like Mitch McConnell you know, being very tepid about saying, well, yeah, sure, we're the party of health care. That sounds great. Because really they a- just got their butts kicked in the midterm it, yeah, election it, on this issue. <laughs> and, you know, as much as the Senate Republicans picked up uh, a little bit of ground in the last election, only a third of the Senate seats are up. And pretty much every state you look at, with the exception with the exception of Florida that everyone likes to point to, uh, the Republicans lost ground in mm-hmm. statewide elections from where Trump had been. So you look at Indiana, where the Democrats lost the Senate race, or Missouri, where they lost the Senate race. Those races were a lot closer than the margin between Trump and and Clinton. They know they got hammered, and they know what they got hammered on. And it was one thing. It was pre-existing conditions. conditions. And now what they're saying is, we're going to take away the protections for pre-existing conditions and all the other benefits of Obamacare. We already took away the pay for. So already premiums are going to rise as a result of that. But in addition to that, we're going to take away all the benefits. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mitch McConnell's looking at that and going like, well, you know, why don't we just like, you know, lock ourselves in a, in a freezer with the key on the outside and <laughs> then detonate nuclear bombs in the city so that nobody else can come and get us out? Like, but then you had Mick Mulvaney yesterday on the Sunday show's promise to Jake Tapper, for instance, that nobody would actually, if you have pre-existing conditions now, you won't lose them. And it's just these sort of sound bites that will really, really hurt in re-election campaigns. It's no more true then when Obama said, if you like your doctor, yes, you can keep him. Precisely. Right. And, right. If, and yeah. it, I mean, it's just what Mick Mulvaney said on television yesterday is just not true. And what's right. Yeah. In fact, even you know, if it's have, true in the four corners, in some cases, it is so deeply misleading. Right. Um, and this man works for the American government, works for the taxpayer and going out there and misleading voters again, just like the president, President Obama did. Uh, when he said, if you like your doctor, you can keep him. Here, here's here's Mulvaney, a very quick bite, what we're talking about. The debate about pre-existing conditions is over. Both parties support them, and anyone telling you anything different is lying to you for political gain. Now, if that were ever true, it's no longer true today. I mean, they are officially on the record saying we want to get rid of every provision of Obamacare, including the protection for pre-existing conditions. So... He's just lying, right? He says anybody who tells you the opposite is a lie. That's a lie. Well, what he would tell you is, what he would say is, our plan is to come in with a new law because Congress is magically suddenly going to get together and pass a health care law to replace whatever they get rid of that somehow is going to pay for itself, right? 
or or keep premiums down, which they have not been able to do on the Republican side. Now you're going to have to do it between the House and Senate. That, of course, is not going to happen. Um, and if you look at the Republican p- plans mean, in the past— Do you mean that not having come up with a plan for the last 10 years, that they're not going to be able to come up with one in the They can't next... come up with a plan because Obama <laughs> passed the Republican plan. The, I mean, the Obama Obamacare was based on the Heritage Foundation's view of how you could possibly get— uh, uh, an expansion of health insurance, right? He went to the he went to what had been sort of a bipartisan amalgamation of the you know or bastardization of of the Heritage Foundation's plan. This is how you do it: you go to the insurance companies, you work with the insurance companies, and you do it through them, and you have a pay for that involves uh, some tax increases. And so that was the plan. They took the Republican plan and went with it. And when that fell, the Republicans had no plan B. So there's no Republican plan. They've tried a bunch of things. They don't work. Um, And now what they would say is, and we saw this in the last Congress, they come forward and they say, what we're going to do is uh, we're going to do pre-existing conditions as part of this. But here's the catch. We are uh, we're going to allow the health insurance companies to charge whatever they want for the plans. So uh, and so as it stands now, you can't charge more. Uh, to an individual, to a consumer, mm-hmm. if they have pre-existing conditions, and what the plant, Republican plan would do is lift that, uh, lift that condition, and so you can charge the consumer anything. At which point, the plan becomes unaffordable. Right. Therefore, you no longer have the guarantee of a protection uh, of coverage if you have pre-existing conditions, at least functionally. So, what this does for Republicans running for re-election, as John indicates, it really puts them out on the limb, right? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. I mean, again, Democrats where they don't want to be. Well, they were Democrats were remarkably successful um, in the last midterms by campaigning, as we said, just on making sure that their constituents would be able to access um, coverage for pre-existing conditions. But this time we have a divided Congress. It's not even as though if Republicans had a plan magically like ready to go on the floor of the House that they could actually get it passed. I mean, there was a chance of that at one point at the start of the Trump administration. When but they controlled both Exactly. Houses. But so I think you're seeing a lot of lawmakers right now say, why are we suddenly the party of health care when we can't even get H.R. 1 on the floor, basically? You know, even that is a struggle. Um, it's again, it, it really it's just not making sense to Republicans. And you're just going to have to wonder if at some point um, somebody talks to Mulvaney, maybe Mark Meadows and says this is just not the best route for us? I don't know. So de- definitely, I think what we're all agreeing is that 20, because of this, 2020 is, I mean, healthcare is once again going to become a central issue in 20, or is going to be a central issue in 2020, as it was in 2018. I mean, this was a huge gift yeah, to the Democratic Party. And it's one and that the they can't undo. the the bar summary. Yes, <laughs> I mean, exactly. God. Right. They, they, yeah, no. I mean, it's almost like Donald Trump can't take yes for an answer. Right. His own victory lap, and he... Cuts on cuts the legs mm-hmm. out from under it mm-hmm. with this healthcare announcement. But let's go back to the Mueller report. Donald Trump also wants to use that. I ask you both, doesn't he? As uh, for twenty twenty, I mean, he's that's going to be central theme twenty twenty, right? I, I reported a lot on this last week. Um, the campaign and the um, pro Trump Super PAC America First and the Republican National Committee are really really fired up about making the theme of vindication central to their um, efforts going forward. You saw that in Grand Rapids the other day. Um, You know, 
you have a lot of aides who wish that Trump would just stick to a pro-economy message the entire time as they hoped in 2018. But he um, he does feel vindicated. He does feel very, very proud of the bar summary. And um, I'm also told, as I reported last week, that you know, central to that theme of vindication and the efforts going forward is to attack reporters, is to, you know, you, they have tons of opposition researchers right now compiling clips and statements and tweets from reporters who spoke about collusion as though it were a given. And anytime said reporter, you know, one of however many says something that they don't like, I mean, they they're going all in on blasting out those clips, statements, whatever. Um that that's not something that Republicans on the Hill think is a good call, which I thought was interesting. You're already seeing that tension mm-hmm. form again. They wish that um, the president would just talk about gains they feel came from tax reform, the stock market right now, but he has no interest in doing that. It's interesting that he would choose to run a Washington insider game for re-election. Good point. To talk right. about yeah. the Mueller report. Yeah. <laughs> well, well yeah. what you hear out of the Democratic candidates, whether it's true or not, is that they never hear a question about the Mueller report on the mm-hmm. campaign trail. And what they want to talk about is the economy and health care. And I think increasingly that's what you're going to see them try to talk about as they're on the campaign trail. I'm sure they will eventually get some <laughs> questions about the Mueller report. But if the president is talking about the vindication of the Mueller report, his fight with the media, that kind of stuff, that is not the president running an outsider campaign. It's also... Um, right. uh, just a quick yeah, anecdote. Sure. Um, I've heard that uh, candidates say that. My own experience, I was up in Wilmington, Delaware, at the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute last week giving a talk, half an hour questions after my talk, questions about climate change, expanding the Supreme Court, getting rid of the Electoral College, da-da-da, not one question about the Mueller report. And this was uh, like two days after, and I expected it to be Full bore model report because I'm in the bubble. I got outside mm-hmm. the bubble. Nobody asked a question. I think that um, one thing that's been crucial for me in the last two years in covering this administration and now the West Wing specifically is understanding how, um, you know, even we're halfway into his term, Donald Trump personalizes the presidency. It's why we're still talking about John McCain, for instance. Um, he a lot of his campaign was fueled out of a belief that the elites didn't like him and he's always wanted buy-in, you know, the Queens versus Manhattan mentality. And even though he's been leader of the free world for almost three years, I mean, it just hasn't changed. So it, it, in that way, it makes a lot of sense to me that Donald Trump would want to run on a theme of vindication. But it goes to show that it's not even so much maybe that he doesn't understand that that's not necessarily helpful to his re-election gains. It's just something that he feels is crucial to do because it's the only thing he thinks about all day. Mm-hmm. We're going to see the report ever? I think so. I, I think it's unsustainable uh, for the administration to not turn over a report that is funded by Congress to Congress. Yeah. La- I mean, and, la- think, la- and, and Donald Trump has said, I mean, I've been there... When he's jumping on at Marine One, he just he says, "Yeah, but I don't care." Mm-hmm. I just want to I just want to jump Uh-oh. in really quickly because, uh, uh, according to the Washington Post, uh, the House Judiciary plans oh, to no. vote on Wednesday to subpoena the Mueller report, uh, which this, of course, would escalate the feud with the Justice Department over the Russia probe findings. So, which presumes that they will not get it tomorrow, but by the deadline that they that they set. Right. Right. Yeah. right. But I think to your point, it, it it's either going to leak out or they're going to have to give it out. Right. I mean, there are several ways that this could come out. One is 
the administration turns it over. One is the courts rule in favor of a subpoena. One is it gets leaked by somebody who has access to it. Another is that they subpoena Robert Mueller and they literally have him talk about it. I mean, there are so many different ways for this to come out, but ultimately Congress oversees and funds the Justice Department. They oversee this work. It is it is unthinkable that this stays hidden. Uh, the American public paid, paid $25, $30 million for it, which, by the way, apparently is going to be recovered in fees and judgments against Paul Manafort. Um, <laughs> Manafort ends up But not paying. ostrich jackets. I think he gets to Manafort, keep those. Manafort ends up paying for the entire Mueller All those report, rugs. Which be... <laughs> okay. Uh, we, find, we have to end with uh, Donald Trump, uh, one thing that we can all agree on. Okay, I want to end the note on a positive note. We all agree with Donald Trump on how important the Great Lakes are. Here he is, Grand Rapids, Michigan, Friday night. I support the Great Lakes. Always have. They're beautiful. They're big. Very deep. Record deepness, right? There we are. Can we all just agree that we all love the Great Lakes? Um, I don't want to agree that they have rep- record deepness. I think they have record they would have record depth if they had record depth, but I believe that Tahoe and Crater Lake are deeper. This is not the positive lakes. note I wanted to end on. <laughs> I'm just saying, for right. what it's worth, also, Wait. he's reversing his own policy while he's speaking there. He was going to slash Great Lakes Restoration Initiative funding in his budget. That's what his budget called for. For, for I thought three hundred million See, to thirty million. Thank you, thank you, thank you, John. Thank you all. See you tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show.